Good morning, Walla Walla University. It's not too often these days that I get to worship twice on Sabbath, but I've enjoyed the first worship service and I've enjoyed worshiping with you in this second service as well. Just want to give a shout out of thanks to those responsible for making my wife and I's visit here for the first time an enjoyable visit and one that is memorable. Uh, Elder Talkinson, uh, Elder Lore, and Elder McCarthy. And also I want to thank Pastor Brian for letting me uh, use his pulpit today. I have a sermonic text that I want to share with you from Romans, the third chapter and the 26th verse. And uh, in honor of the living word, I'd like to invite you to find your place in Romans 3, 26, and then rest on your feet. That means rise. And before we read the word, let's gain access through its author. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the privilege of worship, something that is being challenged in different parts of the world. But you have given us the opportunity of assembling around the name of Jesus. And for his goodness toward us, the children of men, we want to thank you and praise you. As we open the pages of Scripture, may your Spirit guide us into all truth. May your name be uplifted and every heart drawn to you. In the worthy and precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We're reading Romans, the third chapter, in the 26th verse. I'm using the King James Version, and uh, whatever you're using is fine. To declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just, and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. Considering the insights that God has given to Ellen White, I will address a growing issue that could affect our unique mission of preparing the world for the imminent return of Jesus Christ. 
Here are some questions that I want to place before you that we shall consider in this message. Are Adventists of the 21st century asking the right question when they inquire what do the various standards of the Seventh-day Adventist Church have to do with salvation? Or to be more direct, what do diet, dress, dating, entertainment, or even worship contribute to salvation? There is an underlying current to those questions. If they make no contribution to salvation, then is our faith still relevant? There is a concern that goes with these questions. Of the two great movements in the eternal good news, are we losing ground on the other half of redemption's story? Now, it, although it's hard to conceive of, God has a problem. Agreed, God knows all things. Agreed, God is everywhere present. Agreed, God holds all power in his hands. And yet, Ellen White says that God has a problem. Given who God is, what could be problematic to God? Simply put, sin is an affront to God's character and to God's constitution. Sin is also a threat to the unity, the peace, and the love pervading God's kingdom. For while God hates sin and is committed to the total eradication of sin, God also loves sinners and is totally committed to our redemption and transformation. God has a problem. So what guarantee does God offer his loyalists who are recorded in the book of life 
and to sinless beings of unfallen worlds, that he can and he will accomplish both our redemption and our transformation. The first half of the story is pertaining to divine acts of love for us. You see, somewhere in antiquity past, God released breaking news of a secret divine executive meeting. The release said he would make creatures in his own image and likeness, meaning they'd have freedom to choose their own destiny. And should they err, should they veer off course toward some hurtful or self-destructive end, that he loved them enough to redeem them at all costs. Here's where every believer's favorite text comes in. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But inquiring minds want to know, why do Seventh-day Adventists emphasize behavior regarding the redeemed while the Bible simply stresses believe. Well, the remarkable reality and extraordinary news in John 3.16 is about what God did for us. When you add to that, Romans 5 and verse 8, there is an amazing display of grace. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's love-based, not behavior dependent. And there's a wow factor in it. In order to remain just, God could not suspend the death penalty because of Adam's transgression. He could not suspend it, and so he took the penalty on himself. In heavenly places, Ellen White says, under the mighty impulse of his love, 
He took our place in the universe and invited the ruler of all things to treat him as a representative of the human family. He identified himself with our interests. He bared his breast for the stroke of death, took man's guilt and its penalty, and offered in man's behalf a complete sacrifice to God. The reason Christ can offer humanity perfect righteousness and full salvation is because he became our atoning sacrifice. You remember that song, Jesus paid it all? All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. Crimson stain means a protein stain. And protein stains are the most difficult to get out of garments. That's the hardest kind of stain to get rid of. And so Jesus had to apply pure protein on the soiled protein in order to rid the human condition of our crimson stain. He washed in his own blood our sinful condition so that what was soiled and tarnished beyond repair could be made white as snow. Ellen White says that God had a problem, but she calls it a wonderful problem because it ends up with a glorious solution. Now, for the only believed crowd, had the goal been reached at Calvary, had the mission been accomplished at the empty tomb, were the story over with this place, Jesus could have taken everybody to glory with him when he ascended back to heaven. So why are we still here? Why has Jesus not come yet? And why are we still haunted by the ghosts of our past life. When we look at the sanctuary that God instructed Moses to build, the answer is staring us right in the face. Get this. The ark is a symbol of God's presence. God's presence is where God's throne is. The throne where God sits 
has the constitution of God's governance. It has the Decalogue. It has the Ten Commandments at its foundation. What is the significance? Remove the foundation of anything and everything above it will collapse. The bottom line is that the universe can no more do without God's constitution than it can do without God. Why? Because the Constitution is the perfect transcript of God's character of love. If Satan could get rid of God's Constitution, he could get rid of God's character. If the devil could get rid of God's character, then he could get rid of God. Newsflash, because of Calvary, both the foundation and the seat where God sits are intact. In his throne room, the foundation is called his law, and his seat is called mercy. Jesus preserved the law through his perfect obedience and his sinless life. He demonstrated that God is just. But through Christ's substitutionary sacrifice, dying in our stead, reconciling us back to the Father, Jesus proves that God has also become our justifier. Thus Christ unfolds another half of the story. The in us part of the story. You remember Philippians 2.13, For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. What God did for us was love-based but behavior-independent. When God works in us, however, it's grace-based and character-transforming. When I was growing up back in the day, the old-timers used to sing, the things I used to do, I don't do anymore. The places I used to go, I don't go anymore. The things I used to say, I don't say them anymore since Jesus has come into my heart. The second half of the story is about divine work of grace 
in us. Now, people who ask, do church standards have anything to do with my salvation, are actually asking the wrong question. Salvation is what the Godhead did for us. It has nothing to do, these standards have nothing to do with our salvation. Our salvation was done for us. But they have everything to do with our transformation. Let me illustrate it with a personal case story. If God were to take me to heaven right now, heaven would become another New York. I've got too much New York in me to go to heaven right now. But if he took you to heaven right now, heaven might become another Chicago, another Las Vegas, another New Orleans, another San Francisco, and Walla Walla doesn't reach his standard either. So there are three terms we need to insert into the equation in order for us to get home. Free will, appropriation, and readiness. What are those three terms? Free will, appropriation, and readiness. Free will. Jesus is too gentlemanly to force himself on any of us. So if we're going to have a dynamic, personal relationship with Jesus, it has to be consensual. Galatians, second chapter and 20th verse. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Ellen White helps us read between the lines of Scripture. And I want to put on the screen, I hope we can get it, some quotes from Ellen White. First one regarding free will. There is nothing so hard as the crucifixion of the will. Christ was tempted in all points like as we are, but his will was ever kept on the side 
of God's will. In his humanity, he had the same free will that Adam had in Eden. He could have yielded to temptation as Adam yielded. And Adam, by believing God and being a doer of his word, could have resisted temptation as Christ resisted it. Appropriation. Here's how we can appropriate God's grace to our lives. Christ's work. What did I say? I can't hear you. Christ's work was to restore man to his original state, to heal him from the wounds and bruises made by sin. By faith, man's part is to lay hold of the merits of Christ. You have Christ's work and man's part. Christ does the work, and what we, how we respond is to lay hold of the merits of Christ and, key word, cooperate. What's the word? Cooperate with the divine agencies in forming a righteous character. What is the result? The result is God saves the sinner, God remains just, and his righteous law is vindicated. Now when does this happen? The moment, get this, the moment the sinner believes in Christ, he stands in the sight of God uncondemned. For the righteousness of Christ is his. Christ's perfect obedience is imputed to him, but he must do what? cooperate with divine power and put forth his human effort to subdue sin and stand complete in Christ. Which brings us to readiness. Readiness to meet God and to live eternally. God will accept nothing less than unreserved surrender. Half-hearted, sinful Christians can never enter heaven. They would find no happiness. If God were to let us in heaven right now, just as we are, we'd be miserable. And then we'd make everyone else miserable. And then we'd turn heaven into hell.
We can't go to heaven screaming, kicking, and complaining to God about God. It's not going to happen. Because God has declared that he's going to put an utter end to sin and affliction shall not rise up a second time. So what he's going to do is fix the sin problem as long as we are willing to cooperate. I love it. The Holy Spirit is in charge of the fixed sin problem. And as long as we are willing to cooperate, he's going to fix it in my life and fix it in your life. Now, I know this might offend some, but let me just tell you the truth anyhow. This is a universal sign for what? Come on, talk to me. Don't be afraid. I'm not going to hurt you. This is a universal sign for what? Surrender. I'm not Pentecostal, but this is good posture before God. God is looking for entire surrender of our lives. If we are willing to surrender, he will accept us just as we are, and the Holy Spirit will work on our hearts, on our lives, to transform us. So you start out as a bold, rank sinner, and if each step of the way you keep surrendering, he transforms you into a son or a daughter of God. I want to go down to that last slide. You see this one here. Well, let's read it. God will accept nothing what? Nothing less than unreserved surrender. Half-hearted, sinful Christians can never enter heaven. They would find no happiness. Let's go to the next one. No man can cover his soul with garments of Christ's righteousness while practicing known sins or neglecting known duties. God requires what? All right. And unreserved surrender or entire surrender, God requires surrender. I have to stop fighting God. I have to stop arguing with God. I have to stop forcing my will on God. I have to surrender. Now look at this. Let's go to Steps of Christ. Last quote. Everything. Would you read this with me? Everything depends on the right action of the will. The power of choice God has given to men. It is theirs to exercise. 
You cannot change your heart. You cannot give to God its affections. But you can choose to serve him. You can give him your will. He will then work in you and what? To will and to do according to his good pleasure. Thus, here's the kicker, thus your whole nature will be brought under the control of the Spirit of Christ. Your affections will be centered upon him and your thoughts Right now, I want to surrender. Is there anyone else here who wants to surrender? It's real simple. Throw your hands up in front of him. I surrender. And he will work in us to will and to do of his good pleasure.